Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today, the first ever guest on the podcast, episode number one, comes back as the first ever return guest to the podcast. That is Fox News' Tucker Carlson, also of Fox Nation. This is episode 28. On January 6th and his Fox Nation special, to the way the media landscape has massively changed in just a few years, thanks to Trump and other factors, to the downsides of fame, we start with Chris Cuomo's exit from CNN. Thanks so much for doing this. I, I have to say, um, you oh, were- thanks for having me. Yeah, you were the very first guest on the Fourth Watch podcast back in September of last year, and you're the first repeat guest uh, on the Fourth Watch podcast as well. Oh. Thank one of, you. Yeah. One of the questions uh, that I ask everyone uh, of the 27 interviews is, um, is their prediction for what would happen in the next year. So now we're a year out. Your prediction, if you remember, was that there would be fewer news organizations than there were a year ago. And I think that's certainly come true. I also think that certain organizations like BuzzFeed, for example, which is it's Monday right now, has gone public and is not doing so well. Their, their power has, has waned. Um, and then the most newsy part is that individuals at news organizations like, say, Chris Cuomo uh, is no longer there at, at CNN. And that's a, that's a big change. So let me just start there with Cuomo. W- what do you make of what seemed like a very slow, almost looking like it wouldn't be gone? And then all of a sudden, in, in, it's in a mere instant, he's gone and the brother's gone. And the Cuomo name, you know, in terms of, of real staying power has diminished. Yeah. Well, dramatically. I mean, I will make one prediction. And that is that Brian Stelter is not going to get the 9 p.m. on CNN. (laughs) (laughs) Someone just sent me a piece of radar saying Stelter believes he should get this 9 p.m. I mean, of course, I'm rooting for that, um, (laughs) but I don't think it's going to happen. Well, I mean, the second they took him off the air for a cooling off period or hiatus or suspension or whatever they were calling it, of course, everyone who works in the business knew he'd never be on television again, because that's that's the way it works always. There's something about TV as a business where they can't just fire you. They have to kind of prolong it. You know, first they take you off pending a review. Then they hire a law firm and the law firm finds amazing. First of all, law firm finds whatever you ask them to find. Nothing's more corrupt than a law firm, of course, especially the big ones. And so they find, oh, my gosh, he lied to us. We had no idea. And then he's canned. And then predictably, they started attacking him on background. So, you know, you knew. I've been in this more than 25 years. I knew the second he relinquished that spot, he was never coming back. And I probably uniquely in America felt bad for him. I honestly think I may be the only person who feels bad for Chris Cuomo. I bet his wife is deeply relieved, but I feel bad for him because there are probably a lot of reasons to pull him off the air. I thought he was a buffoon from day one uh, and a fraud, but helping his brother is kind of the best thing he ever did, not the worst thing he ever did, because it's his brother. Now, I I despised his brother. I thought he was an awful governor. I'm in no way defending the Cuomos, their politics, their attitudes, their membership in the mafia, you know, none of that. But I think that family loyalty is the most important thing. And it just tells you so much that in the media world, which really is a lot of super damaged people crowded together in one place, that didn't even rate as a concern. You know, I mean, if someone worked for me and he did something wrong in defense of his brother, that would be a massively mitigating circumstance, I would say. I mean, you know, my my brother did something awful. I'm harboring him. Yes, it's a crime. But, you know, he's my brother. And I would say 
I'm sorry. I'm just going to say, I get it. You know, I do. I would do the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, 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 I heard that argument. I, I think that there's definitely validity to it. And I, and I don't necessarily fault him for, you know, defending his brother and going to bat for his brother. It is kind of funny that what brought him down was the shadow of his brother, which yeah. is like what he's been living with his whole life. But I, I think that it, you can do that. But then I don't know how you expect to necessarily keep your job uh, as a CNN well, host. Necessarily. I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, look, you know, you do what you have to do. You have a hierarchy of obligations in your life, in my life. You know, it's concentric. These are concentric circles of concern and obligation. At the very center is your family, your spouse, your children, and then your extended family, your siblings, your parents, and then beyond that, your friends, and then your coworkers. You know, it kind of goes out. Yeah. And I'm sorry, family comes before everything else, just period. That can never change. That's the fundamental building block of society. That's our deepest moral obligation is to our family. And so if you suffer for exercising that obligation, then maybe that's what it is. But there's something disgusting about CNN's behavior in this. I mean, he he faked a quarantine. Now, I personally don't care because I don't think Corona is the worst thing that ever happened. Right. But he did. And he was up there lecturing everybody else about a wear your little obedience mask or whatever. And and then he's out running around Long Island yelling at people with no mask on. You know, I actually don't like hypocrisy. And if I and I, I'm as hypocritical as anybody. I think all of us are. But if I was ever caught doing something hypocritical, I would be deeply ashamed. I mean, I really would. I would be ashamed because I'd fallen short of the standards that I articulate on television. And he didn't seem ashamed at all. So, you know, I'm not defending Cuomo as a man. He, uh, last thing I'll say, he did say something very interesting, which I never forgot. And he said very few things that were interesting because he's a banal person. But he did say one thing that I thought was deep. It was a few years ago, maybe 2019. And he gave an interview and he said, you know, all my friends are telling me, get out of this job, get out of this business, because in the end, it's guaranteed destruction. I mean, that's what cable news primetime is. Like, in the end, you're destroyed. And of course, that's true. And everyone who's clear thinking in the business knows it, and people make their own personal accommodations with it. They're haunted by it or they're not. But I did think that was a very self-aware, insightful thing to say, and it definitely made me like Homo more. And in that same interview, he said, you know, my wife really wants me to get out. I don't know his wife. She sounds like a pretty sensible chick. And she was right. And he should have gotten out, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. You know. No. And, and it's, it is interesting because I want to ask you about in general about the media in a post-Trump world. Um, but but I, I don't think that that sentiment of it, and, and it was maybe a brief momentary moment of, of introspection that Chris Cuomo had, because I don't, I don't think yeah. nearly enough people who are on TV, who are in the media, who have changed in real significant ways in the last five or six years are able to step back and sort of look at the landscape and say, right. what, what is That's happening right. to me and to us? Tucker's Fox footprint goes far beyond his massively watched 8 p.m. cable news show. Now with Fox Nation, he's doing specials on Kyle Rittenhouse on January 6th. It's driving eyeballs and controversy. Something that is adjacent to cable news, although it is very different. And I think that's that's Fox Nation. And you have obviously the most watched uh, show on cable news and many times on cable, but you're also deeply involved in Fox Nation, which is sort of the new way of, of the media, right? It's streaming platform on Fox subscription. Uh, you do Fox, uh, I mean, sorry, you do Tucker Carlson today on there um, with long form interviews, but you also have this documentary series, which I have to say, I mean, you, you, 
there's uh, there's Patriot Purge, which I will talk about after this. You've got a, not only the interview with Kyle Rittenhouse, but the documentary with Kyle Rittenhouse that's coming out uh, next week. I think that's uh, on December 14th. What is it about Fox Nation and what you can do there without the guardrails that is exciting to you? Well, I mean, if, the way that we, th- I, I, I speak only for myself, but I, I thought about it in two ways. One, all this interesting stuff that you want to do, particularly these interesting people that, you know, I really wanted to talk to at greater length, um, which I would normally do over dinner or lunch. I have a lot of meals with people because I like people. Um, but it doesn't fit into the parameters of a, of a nighttime cable news show, you know, which is like five minutes tops. And so how cool would it be? I mean, I don't really do any work, honestly. I just try and find, you know, I do have a hand in finding the people. Um, but I mostly just sit there, you know, I just let them talk. I mean, I, I did an interview the other day with Michael Saylor, who's an unbelievably interesting, smart person. and went for an hour and a half. I think I must've spoken a total of like 30 seconds. Mostly just like, wow, you know? And so, to some extent, I do it for my own enjoyment and benefit and edification, education. I didn't do well in college. I was drunk the whole time. And so how cool is it to talk to these super smart people? Bitcoin, I knew nothing about Bitcoin. I'm still not an expert, but after an hour and a half of listening to Michael Saylor, I felt like I sort of understand this more. And yeah. that's just a great and beautiful thing for me personally. But more broadly, you look at the landscape and you think, well, wait a second, we're totally dependent on a couple of deeply sinister, publicly held, non-American, you know, companies owned by the sovereign wealth funds of Malaysia, you know, or the Chinese like Facebook or Google to disseminate our content. And how is that working exactly? Now we're Fox and so we're big and we have some SWAT. People are kind of afraid to dick with us too much, but like over time you need a protected channel if you want to reach people. And the only way to do that is with your own channel, with a paywall. And that's what Fox Nation is. And so to have a place that, you know, right now it doesn't matter, right? If we say something on TV, I mean, it may get pulled off YouTube, but we have viewers who watch it live. So people hear it, but who knows where this goes? Things are moving really, really fast. So it, it felt like a something worth investing in right now, you know, a more protected way to communicate with people, honestly. Yeah, that's interesting because it's, it's so you're saying it's not just that, you know, this is a platform that as the, the changes in the media landscape and people's viewing habits, this is a this is a new way for people to find it. This is the future. But it's also uh, censorship protection in a way. Uh, 100%, uh, 100%. You you go on Wikipedia. I mean, I'm I'm hardly a historian. I'm a talk show host, but I'm interested in history. I read a lot of history. You know, you go on Wikipedia and it. It, it, it doesn't represent the reality of what happened. I mean, in some cases, but in most, it's a joke. It's a boulderized, ridiculous version that is effectively propaganda. And you see that Google wide. I mean, that's the truth of Google. It gives you the impression that you're getting all available information, but it's so curated that in fact, you're not. You read any book published before the Second World War, and you get a, com- which is mostly what I read, and you get a completely different perspective on the world. Um, and so the truth is the internet is a lie to a great extent. It's a lie in that it promises you one thing and very stealthily delivers another, which is an edited version of history designed to make you comply or buy into whatever bullshit storyline they're, they're telling you. And so I, I really believe that. I mean, it. Yeah. I actually try to stay off the internet because I'm so offended by it. And to some small extent, I hope that I can help build an alternative 
that's really, I'm not doing it for the money. I can promise you that I'm, I'm doing because I really believe it. It seems like a massive amount of work. And that's interesting about the internet. I, I, this is a very cliche thing to say, but there are obviously pros and cons to the internet. Um, but yeah, but, but that's, and, and I, I, I want to talk about your book, The Long Slide also later, because I, you had an interesting, you know, you had a funny part about Wikipedia in there and how that's just like the latest line in kind of the lies that, that people, yeah. people put out there. Um, that, that's, that's very true. Let me ask you though about Patriot Purge as well, because this has gotten a lot of attention. This was a three-part uh, series that you put out about January 6th. And before I get specifically to it, and this, it, I, I thought it was interesting because January 6th, uh, the criticism, uh, if I put on my Washington Post media reporter hat, is the media as a whole, the CNNs of the world, the MSNBCs of the world are giving the right amount of time to the the, the significance of January 6th, but Fox is not. Well, here's a three-part series about January 6th. Shouldn't we, shouldn't we be supportive of that? And, and I don't think there's a more representative element to this than Ray Epps. Um, and again, I'm, people can find out more about Ray Epps wherever they, they go. This is a very legitimate story. And it's something that as much as the CNNs of the world cover January 6th, they don't, they've never mentioned the, the, the words Ray Epps. It's, Ray Epps has been written in one New York Times story since January 6th. What yeah. is it about the focus on January 6th, but then the focus on very specific areas of January 6th that made you say, we need to give a, a different look at this? Well, I hated what happened on January 6th. You know, one of my kids was actually in the building when it happened. I was on the phone in real time. I'm from Washington. I hate disorder, hate breaking windows above all else. I just, just don't want to live this side of people break windows. Sorry, yeah. or litter. I'm, I'm about order and my house is clean. You know, I really believe in that. So if people covering January 6th had been willing to just roughly tell the truth, maybe punched up a little bit, I get it, but not use it as a partisan instrument to suspend civil liberties, I kind of would have just let it lie. Okay, people got all wound up, I get it. Some of them misbehaved. I'm not, I'm not gonna defend that, um, but it has been used like so many events through history as a pretext for something else. So they lie about what actually happened. They repeat the lie with maximum aggression. And over time, that lie solidifies into the common understanding of what happened. And I could give you a lot of examples of things about which that is true. But for me to tell, there were two. One, so I, I feel like, I, and I'm not being falsely ingenuous here. I mean, I really did feel like kind of just watch it as someone who used to cover the Congress, knows the Congress well, my office is next door. I know that world. And so I'm watching this. I'm like, ah, you know, this is not good. And then I heard them say it was an insurrection, mm. which, by the way, I was willing to believe. OK, it was an insurrection. Like I didn't know anything about it, but OK. And then two, that it was an act of racism. Well, everyone, I, I, I didn't see any evidence for that. So as the days kind of progressed, I kept waiting for someone to prove to me that this was an act of white supremacy and that it was an insurrection. And of course, there's zero evidence in either case. And then the Ashley Babbitt thing happened and I was... Again, my sympathies are my instincts are always with law and order, the police. And they shot this woman. And maybe there's a good reason. Yeah. And it turns out there was no good reason at all. They shot her without warning. She's like five two. She's a girl. Like the whole thing was insane. And I was like, wait a second. And then on the insurrection question, almost a year in, there's no not one single, not one data point of evidence that there was a planned insurrection, which is to say an effort to overthrow the US government. That's not true. And we would know. And then there was no evidence of racial animus. So like once you realize that everybody, including people on my channel, are participating in this lie and calling it an insurrection, anyone who calls January 6th an insurrection is a liar. 
at this point. That's just flat out because there's no evidence. There's never been. Why has no one been charged with insurrection? Why is there no insurrectionist plot? Like, tell me what the insurrection consisted of. No, it is a lie. So why are they lying? And that became kind of my obsession. Like, why won't they stop lying about this one thing? Duh. I don't have a super high IQ. It took me like months to figure it out because they're going to use this in order to classify an entire political party as a terrorist movement. And lo and behold, that's what they're doing. So then my posture became, all right, you want to uncover all the facts about January 6th? Why don't we go ahead and do that? Here's some questions. How many people in the crowd that day were working for the DOJ? Oh, my God, you're a conspiracy theorist. Well, of course, I'm the opposite of a conspiracy theorist. Right. I don't. That's not my temperament at all. I'm 52. I'm from Southern California. There were no conspiracies in my childhood at all. So, like, I just don't think that way. I'm asking a sincere question as a journalist. What's the freaking answer? And their answer is shut up. At which point, you know, you're directly over the target and just keep going. And so we have. I, and it's interesting. I mean, you there not only is there no evidence of insurrection, there is no no one's been charged with insurrection. But and I, I verify this because I'm not a January 6th historian in the way that certain people have made this like their entire career at this point. But I've asked. Yes, them, I said, because that Ray Epps video may be the only thing that I thought I'd seen that shows some level of premeditation. You know, let's say Ray Epps yes. was just a protester. This would be someone on the night before who was saying, let's go into the Capitol. Let's you know, we have to do. That was, and I've confirmed, that's the only video evidence of someone with a premeditation about going to the Capitol. What, why is that exactly. not wallpaper on CNN and MSNBC? I, 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 it's to me, the whole thing is unbelievable. So it's, I'll just say up front, it's not my world. You know, it's not, I'm not an activist. I never have been, never been involved in politics. I just watch, I just watch a TV show at night. That's, so I didn't know a lot about the stuff that was going on. But I saw that video. First of all, we've interviewed a bunch of people who got arrested and went to jail for like nothing, including a guy who didn't even go inside. He was just standing there. He winds up in prison, charged with felonies. Here you have this guy, Ray Epps, who, of course, I'd never heard of, standing there saying, tomorrow, let's go breach the Capitol. And what's so interesting, of course, you've seen the video, but all the people standing around, mostly younger people, he's a man in his 70s, it appears to be. They look at him and they're like, Fed! I know. Yeah. So that's like not how my brain works. I never think there are feds anywhere. I, I never think, I just don't think like that. But these are people who are in that world and they instantly recognize there's something wrong with this guy. It's like, hey, kids, let's go break <laughs> the law. So here you have a guy on videotape, four separate videotapes, encouraging the crowd to break the law. And he hasn't been arrested. So then you have to ask yourself, like, why? And why is that Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger or these enormously self-righteous buffoons? She's not a buffoon, actually. She's pretty smart. But she's a, she's just a, a, a tool of authoritarianism. I mean, obviously, at this point, like, if you were a normal person and you were up there saying, we need more information on January 6th, fine. I don't expect all of it will be exculpatory to my side, whatever that is. Right. But I do think we should know more. If she's yeah. like, no, shut up, you can't ask that question. It's unpatriotic. Then we know for a fact that Dick Cheney's daughter is a sinister figure, like an actually sinister figure in our politics. And anyone who doesn't see that really clearly, uh, I don't really know how to assess, but it's very obvious to me. It, it's become a, uh, a signaling opportunity, it feels like. You know, I, I think that the, yeah, this has happened with so Like everything, that's right. Yeah, I mean, COVID, I think, is, is perhaps the biggest one. I, I, it's funny to go back and watch the media. I was actually on your show 
the day after January 6th, talking about Anderson Cooper being like, oh, these people are going to go back to the Olive Garden and Holiday Inn. And, and yeah. you know, the, that sort of dismissiveness. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, it totally changed in, in the days and weeks later because it became much more serious. And we can't- They got the you know, memo. Yeah. Right. And, and so, so it completely has changed. But, but you mentioned people on your own network, people that, that were on your network that are no longer um, contributors that maybe say this was the reason that they are leaving. Uh, they say this was the reason they're leaving, whether that, that is true. But even others, there's been reports that had issues with the specifics of, of the documentary. What do you what do you think of that? Does that have you had any internal conversations about no the documentary? Yeah. No, I never had one. I mean, there were people who thought that the um, the trailer was punched up and inflammatory. Yeah, I would say that that's probably a fair criticism. It's a trailer. Um, it was it preceded the documentary by a few hours, so you could kind of watch it and assess it. You know, and um, I've never had a single person on either side within the company or outside the company say, you know, I think you got it wrong on this, or I think this was unfair. Not one person, not one. Now my text, which you have, and everybody on freaking planet earth has it, you know, I, I never, I'm very easy to get in touch with. Everyone gets in touch. I don't have your text. Right. <laughs> you I don't. can certainly get it in about 30 seconds. I know. Everybody I does. No, but the point is like, I don't, I like talking to people. I like people. So, yeah. you know, um, but I would just say this, leaving me aside of the documentary side, which again, people can assess. I'm an old school liberal that way. You know, just watch it yourself and see what you think. But anybody who refers to the events of January 6th as an insurrection is a liar. Let me just say that is a liar. And no matter where you work or who you think you're working for, like that's a lie and you know, it's a lie and you're saying it anyway. So I guess the question is like, how do you live with yourself? Like we're, I mean, we all make mistakes. We all say things we think are true or we get, or speaking for myself, overheated and overstate things. I certainly am guilty of that for sure. And I regret it every time, but I do it. But to say something intentionally that you know is untrue in order to mislead your audience, and I'm thinking of someone very specific when I say this, but there are many others. Like, how do you, how do you continue in this job? Like, you're a liar. That's the one thing you're not allowed to be in our business. Who are you thinking about? I don't know. It's pretty obvious. But, you know, but they all do it. They all, they're all the same. And I just feel like they don't, what they don't understand is, you know, most people are not paying attention, but for yeah. the percentage who are paying attention, that's totally discrediting forever. It's forever. Like you're destroying this business that we didn't create. We inherited. I got here 30 years ago. My dad did it. My grandfather did it. I mean, this is a pre-existing business. It's a huge part of how a democracy functions. It's essential to have a working media and to destroy it for some short-term political gain, or you don't like Donald Trump or whatever, so let's just blow the whole thing up. That's a very big thing to do. And I'm, uh, you know, I am ultimately conservative in the truest sense. Like I don't like radical change for its own sake. I don't like destroying things that previous generations created. I don't like that. I don't, whether it's a building or whether it's institutional like journalism. And I really feel like they have, I mean it. Coming up, Carlson's book, The Long Slide, and how the media industry and Washington DC has changed in the era of Trump but also before Trump. That's next. But first, the scam that is the Steele dossier and the Russia collusion narrative has been working its way through the media now for several months. There was denial back in 2017, then there was anger and bargaining and depression in the subsequent years. While some have reached the acceptance stage, others are finding it much harder to take. It wasn't a hoax, 
wrote David from boldly and embarrassingly in the Atlantic recently, the editorial embodiment of a child stomping their feet while holding their hands over their ears. Drew Holden, master of receipts, meticulously picked apart Frum's piece and the entire denial narrative in an excellent thread on Twitter. But then there's also Ann Applebaum, now also at The Atlantic, but previously a columnist and journalist at The Washington Post. Here's how she's taking the reality. This is from her tweet. Even if every single word in the Steele dossier was wrong, that would not change the fact the Russians sought to manipulate the U.S. election using hacked material and a disinformation campaign, nor would it change the fact that the Trump family welcomed this intervention. You know, your argument isn't going to be journalistically sound when it starts, quote, even if every single word in the Steele dossier was wrong. Look, on some level, I feel for people like Applebaum in particular, who has based her entire career for the past five years on a narrative that has imploded. Applebaum and Frum, to some degree, are undergoing a sort of existential crisis playing out in real time on Twitter, mostly. Acceptance is likely to never come because if they accept the truth, what does that say about who they are? But all journalists should take the opportunity to get the story right. Take just one piece from 2017 as an example. This was by CNN. FBI used dossier allegations to bolster Trump-Russia investigation. Imagine if CNN's Manu Raju, Evan Perez, and Shimon Prakupes reported out the implications of this story, knowing what we know now about the Steele dossier. What does it say about James Comey? About Carter Page? About them? More with Tucker coming up, but first, the Fourth Watch podcast is presented by The First TV. The First is a new network for free speech and big ideas featuring Bill O'Reilly, Dana Lash, Buck Sexton, and more. It's a forum for new thought, new approaches, and an enlightening voice for a new America that embraces the founding principles and ideals that formed the greatest country on the planet. The First is free, free speech, free ideas, free TV. Watch The First TV on Pluto TV, Distro TV, Apple TV, The First TV app, and more. Go to thefirsttv.com to learn more. And now, back to Tucker Carlson. I want to talk about your book, The Long Slide, which I've got over here. And I have to say, you know, for a journalism nerd like myself, it's fantastic. But it's also great for anyone who just wants to, to see about the cultural shifts that have happened. And I think, you know, it kicks off with an acknowledgement that basically slams, you know, one of the executives who you've worked with for a long time, Jonathan Karp, as someone who was an open-minded book editor and now becomes a cor cartoonish corporate censor. Um, and it's it's the the whole introduction is fa fascinating because you interview him and another one of the, the editors who you've worked with and you get to the bottom of why they didn't publish Josh Hawley's book after January 6th. But I yeah. thought the most telling thing was that it, it, they, it, was, it became very clear that it was a business decision. They wanted to even make that point to you. This is not about politics. This is about business. And to illustrate that, he said, look, we published Candace Owens' book, who, you know, both of them, Hawley and, and Candace Owens, have been guests on your show. But I would, if I made, if I ranked the most controversial statements by each of them, Candace would be way up down the, you know, down the list. I mean, <laughs> yes. Hawley's just like a senator who says, you know, a couple of things. So, so there's no real principle to it. And, and it got me thinking about, do you think that this cultural shift that we're in, which is obviously very clear, you talk about these, some of these articles you maybe couldn't have even written if it was today, yeah. the things you've written 10 years ago or, or as little as five years ago, do you think that it's, there's a logic to it? Or do you think it's just everyone who's in court, sort of corporate power running around scared of the mob? They're afraid. That's exactly it. They're afraid. That's exactly, you just put your finger on it right there. It's look, clearly the system is changing really, really fast. The population of the country is changing really, really fast, which drives everything. And the systems that we grew up with, whether they're economic or political journalism, they're all changing really fast. And so the people running the current iterations of those systems are terrified because they can feel 
the ground shifting beneath them. And rather than, and this is such a common human phenomenon, rather than, you know, loosen the grip a little bit, look around, see, you know, what is this about? Ask yourself the basic critical questions. They're holding on to power so desperately. So why, you know, two great things happened. In the, I don't know, great, but two profound things happened in the last 20 years. One, we got the internet, 30 years, really. Um, we got the internet and all information migrated to it. And, or we felt that all it did. And the second was we decoded the human genome, which is like the, the key to human biology. And once those things happened, the society became much less free. And the reason is, in my view, that the people running the society realized this is just too much information. This is really scary. People could reach the dramatically wrong conclusions and we can't trust them uh, to make their own decisions. And once you decide that, and I'm, by the way, I'm not a populist, just to be totally clear, I'm instinctively kind of an elitist. I think the most capable people should run the society. I really do. I really do. But I do believe in democracy above all. You have to kind of let people make the decisions that they want. It's their country. They own it by definition. And the people who run the country decided, no, it's not really their country. It's ours. And we're going to run it. And because I was living in Washington and did for 35 years, it was a little harder for me to see this. I started to notice my neighbors getting very hostile and brittle. But because I lived there, I didn't see the full outlines. And it was only when I left. And I always loved Washington. I'm not attacking it. But once I got out of there, I was like, wow, it's so clear what's going on. The people running this crumbling society, I hate to say it, but it is clearly, it's changing, don't want to relinquish control. And, and like, you know, any kind of Eastern European, you know, Nikolai Ceausescu, as they, as they feel like things are falling apart, they clamp down even harder. The Ottomans did the same. I mean, it's a, it's a feature of human nature. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. In fact, it makes it worse. So I'm really worried about the stability of the society, like for, for actually worried about it. I think most people are. And, um, and I would, and I would lay the blame a hundred percent on the people in charge. I would. Yeah. And, and this is a point you get out in two pieces on it, but before, do, do you find that there's a difference though, your neighbors now where you live, which is not DC, do, do, are they have the same sort of, you know, on edge and divisiveness, or do you think that it is really, as I do, actually kind of a New York and DC much more yes. than, than other places in the country are kind of this amplified in Los Angeles. I mean, in yeah. any place that perceives itself as, you know, kind of running things. Right. I mean, power has never been evenly distributed. It was once much more, even when I was a small child, you know, Grand Rapids, was a major regional center in Western Michigan. I mean, they had, it's had its own social hierarchy and its own economy and they built office furniture and like Grand Rapids was a real place. And Chicago was of course the lodestar around which it, it you know, it, it rotated, but it, but the country was much more diffuse that way. You know, you had prominent people in every major Indianapolis, every big town, right? So um, over the course of my life, all the power, all the IQ points, all the money, went to a much smaller number of physical places and a lot of reasons for that. But the effect of it culturally is the people who, and I've spent my whole life in those places, but the people who live in those places really feel like, wow, we're running this empire. It's on us. And, you know, maybe they're mad at the rest of the country or maybe they're not, but they definitely, I never was, but I, you always felt like, gosh, you know, we're sort of running things. 
And if things start to fall apart and, and, and you don't have flexibility and a deep imagination and some moral sense, as most of those people don't, because our system doesn't elevate people who do have those things, then you can't handle it. You go crazy. And like you find, you wake up in the morning, like, well, maybe we should just like crush everyone who disagrees and like make sure they can't know what's going on and, you know, make them take some weird vaccine they don't want or else we're going to make them starve to death. You know, like- I still feel that way. I'm still shocked occasionally by what happens. I like Jim Cramer saying that everyone, you know, the government must, you know, intervene and vaccinate everyone by January. It's just like, like, listen to, and the military should be in charge of it. (laughs) And I know Jim Cramer fairly well. I'm not against Jim Cramer. I mean, I think he's a person of sort of limited intellect, but a kind of savant like thing with, with equities. It's fine. I'm not mad at Jim Cramer, but like you wonder Jim Cramer, Harvard graduate, can you hear yourself? You just yeah. called for the U.S. military to forcibly give people medicine they don't want. Like what? What? Uh, but they can't uh, hear themselves. That's the thing. Know? I mean, even if you think that, which is one thing, you say that on national TV, and you think that that's like a, a like a making us <laughs> horrible. I, I don't. Okay, let me ask you though. So, so as an example of kind of like the shift, right? You you wrote this great piece about uh, Tommy. Giacomo was his name, uh, the yeah. which was this New York Times article about like the olden days of DC when, you know, it was normal for men to be out in the middle of the day, have a drink and swap stories. This was like less than 20 years ago. This was like how fast. Yes. No, shifted. it was like nine years ago. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, that piece is old, but the, but the phenomenon was real. Yeah. Right. And then, and then this kind of dovetails also with, with your Trump piece, which, which you wrote in January of 2016, which was way earlier than, than anyone else who I think correctly, not I support Trump, but I predict that Trump very easily could become the nominee and could become the president. You wrote in Politico, which you also have a great aside about Politico and why you wrote it in Politico, but you tell this story about what Trump said to you, um, which after you made fun of his hair, he called you and said, it's true you have better hair than I do, but I get more pussy than you do. And you called it shocking, vulgar, and indisputably true, which sort of sums up the entire Trump presidency. And so my wife, I tell my, this is like 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago, but I tell my wife this and she goes, yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> honesty, that you know, radical honesty. But but I wonder, honest. Because, yeah. because look, Trump obviously has become, you know, the storyline of the last four years, although I would argue 2021 was sort of quiet for most people when it came to Trump, although not if you watch CNN. But but do you think that the D.C. that you remember and 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 the people that you encountered who maybe were liberals and were Democrats, but you could sit down and have yeah. have a drink with and we're reality-based individuals, has that, I mean, do you have examples in your mind that you say, these people have changed potentially forever because of this person? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's all gone now. I mean, I could bore you for, for I could write a whole separate book on it. But yeah, I mean, I, I went there in high school. My dad worked for the government and um, lived in Georgetown. Um, and, you know, I was in some ways, if I say I'm from Southern California, but I'm in some ways a product of Washington and I loved it. And partisanship was not real. I mean, there was a truce, you know, because it's a bipartisan city. You know, some proportion of the Congress is from the other party. So everyone kind of lives together. And there was this unspoken agreement that you don't pollute, say, dinner parties or soccer games at your kid's school with political. I mean, for years, I stood next to Susan Rice, who was my next door neighbor on the sidelines at our girls' soccer games, you know. And I mean, Hunter Biden lived, our wives were best friends. I mean, I just... 
you lived in a world where your There's a story about Hunter Biden with you that I'm. I oh, right. you know? I know. Yeah, I've been really easy on Hunter Biden. <laughs> Stupid. But anyway, but the point is, I like that. Yeah. You know, I'm not. I, I have a political show. I have very strong political beliefs, but I, I don't lecture my children about politics. I don't get home and talk. You know, I talk to my wife about whatever PG Woodhouse novel she's reading or or whatever. I mean, that's like not. I believe in a in a private sphere where things like they're more important than politics, like your family or your religious beliefs or your, what you're reading. You know, these are the important things in my house. And so I always liked it. And I knew a million Democrats who had pretty much the same life views that I did about family or whatever. And they were just part of this party. And it all changed in there. And Trump precipitated it. However, I got to be honest, the core problem is deeper than that. The core problem is the projects that Washington was working on for decades, really post-war, post-1945, keeping the peace internationally, keeping the economy stable, making certain this remained a middle-class country, they failed. Like, they didn't do a good job with the tasks they were in charge of. And that's very hard for people to accept. It's very hard to take responsibility for that and to acknowledge, you know, we fucked up in some really deep way. Yeah. And I think that's a hard thing to do. I mean, I, I, like everybody I've, you know, I supported the Iraq war, you know? So like, I know what it's like to have to say, which I did immediately when I got back from Iraq in early 2003. Um, wow. I cannot believe I would support something like that. I'm just, I'm, I'm ashamed. I was so wrong. And I don't think that's an easy thing to do, but I think it's a morally essential thing to do. Not that I'm like the person you should take a moral lecture from, but I, that's just like life 101. If you screw up, admit it. Most people will understand it and then move on. But they yeah. were never, I think because they were too implicated in it. You know, they'd have like a program that's just really in one sentence, but just one among a million examples. Head Start was a program started, I think, in 1965. So that would be, what, 56 years ago. And it was designed to raise the IQ points of poor kids. Okay, that was that was the stated goal of it. It didn't work. They changed the purpose of it. Well, actually, now it's about this. It's about that. It limped along for more than 50 years. It never once worked. The idea was great. I'm not against the idea. But the reality never matched the promise. It failed. And no one would admit it. <laughs> So I could look at this and be like, if you can't admit that one federal program, reading, nutrition, whatever program it is, I mean, it's changed so much. But if you can't admit that one federal program didn't work, then you're probably not going to be able to admit that you say devalued the U.S. dollar or made the world more chaotic or destroyed the American middle class. Like you probably can't admit anything if you can't admit that. And of course, they can't. Right. Right. And, and, I, and I think, you know. If you just focus, I mean, that's sort of the political side of it. I, I want to know from the media side, because I see if you think this right. I, I, there are some people I think of like a Tim Russert who, you know, mm -hmm. I, I think was legitimately someone like of the people, like didn't get changed by DC. But I do also feel like there are people that I encountered and throughout my my career in the media um, at places like CNN or NBC who who had a very inflated self worth and and of the job. You know, yeah. it was like we're doing very important work, and they really weren't until Trump came along and they could sort of graft this idea of now I can finally you know plant my flag and save democracy, and and they really I think like legitimately embrace it and, it and it became a mission and and almost like it, it went to their head in some ways i mean in ways that that left some of them you know feeling like sick i think 
Well, I mean, if you find yourself working in TV and telling yourself, much less other people, you have a very important job, you know, you're a ridiculous person. You know, I was in a hospital yesterday with someone I love who's dying, a relative. And Sorry to hear that. You know, watching the nurse, watching the nurse, you know, really minister to this person, I thought, man, that's an important job. You know, holding someone's hand as she dies. Yeah. Like that's important. You know, having a TV show is super interesting. I hope I do it forever. I like it. Meet all these people. You get to say what you think. I mean, it's really gratifying. Is it important in some world historic sense? I mean, are you joking? No, is the answer. It's not actually. Yeah. It doesn't bear on the questions of life and death. And anyone, if Brooke Baldwin like convinces herself she's saving the world or something, that's just sad. And it shows we're letting a lot of really dumb people with limited perspective into our business. And we shouldn't. We should have higher standards than that. That's the first thing. Second, like these people should never be on the side of entrenched power. It's just really simple. If you find yourself defending Amazon or the CIA or the federal government in your job as a journalist, then you, you have inverted the mission. Like that is not only is that not your job, that's the opposite of your job. And right. yet they all, I watch these people, many of whom, almost all of whom actually I know, and some of whom I still like, and I'm like, you're really defending the intel agency just reflexively. I mean, maybe the intelligences are right, in which case defend them. But don't do it reflexively because you think your job is to defend power against the masses. Like, what the hell? Right. You know? No, that I mean that that feels like the crux of it. Whether it is corporate or whether it's government, the, yeah, the coziness. Exactly. Yeah, I mean the coziness we've seen now is is so. Can't criticize unlikely. Pfizer. <laughs> really? We live in a world where you can't criticize Pfizer. Yeah. Pfizer. The fourth watch lightning round is coming up. A new version, just for Tucker Carlson, since he's returning. But first, when he was at MSNBC and CNN, did Carlson think he'd ever be this famous and powerful? Before I get to our last thing, the six questions, 60 seconds, I got to get new ones because you've already done it once before. Let me ask you, though, because you mentioned, you know, the way that cable news can can affect someone in a negative way. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you were at CNN and then MSNBC, did you ever think that you would have as much fame and fortune and power Ugh. as you do ha- have now. I mean, it, it, it is, you know, and, and clearly I, th- I would say it hasn't affected you. I mean, I, I think if people watched your, you know, you on Crossfire, you know, it, it's a very similar kind of vibe. So I don't, I don't think it's affected you in that way, but I, I wonder if you can, if you could have envisioned then where your career would be now. No. And I thought I was out. I mean, I, I never took my career super seriously. That was part of the reason I kept failing. Um, I don't think I take it that seriously. Now I take, the job part seriously. I mean, I, I, I think I legitimately work hard um, because I love it. I think it's super, super interesting, but, and you know, you, you, you almost can't talk about fame or being famous or whatever without sounding like a fraud. So I guess I won't other than to say no upside. And I mean that there's no upside. And I, you know, anyone who thinks there is an upside hasn't lived it. So I don't, I'd be really interested in meeting someone who's lived with it for more than like a week yeah. and says, Oh God, I really like this. You know, I really like being recognized at Walgreens. <laughs> right. if, you, if, if you like that, you are a sick person. Well, right. No, no, for sure. Although look, I mean, I think that, that, that what you have, and you've talked about this in other interviews is this, this amazing group of hundreds of people that you've met who, you know, because of potentially, you know, the, the, the reach you have, um, you know, can, can give you this, this feedback loop. Can oh, give yeah. I mean, I think that that's gotta be a valuable. Uh, oh, I love talking of, to people. Yeah. I do. I mean, 
I just personally, you know, if I wanted to exercise power, I would have gone into government. I mean, I grew up in D.C. I got there at 15. So it's not like like if I wanted to be, you know, undersecretary of the Treasury, I guess I probably would have done that now. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. Like, I, yeah. that's just not part of my makeup. Ask, I mean, look at my behavior. I'm not I have really strong feelings, but I don't I've never coveted power. I, I and I and I don't trust anyone who does. Honestly, why would I? I'm a journalist. I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, whether you want it or not, I'd say that in our current uh, maybe fucked up scenario, you you have probably more power than anyone in government. So I would just it's throw just that out. A, it's just a passing moment like all of them. Exactly. In exactly. the end, I'm not a huge fan of Conor O'Brien, but he did say something so brilliant once. I've never forgotten. I think of it every day. He said, in the end, all graves go unvisited. And he's exactly right. Sad but true. All right, Tucker, last thing. Six questions, 60 seconds. What is your favorite place in the world? Oh, gosh. Maine, you know, Maine, up near Canada. Yeah, the forest, the woods, Maine woods. Yeah. All right. What's one thing you've learned about being a dad that you'd like to pass along to future dads? They don't listen to what you say. They watch what you do. You know, treat your wife well. If you want a cohesive, happy family, have a happy marriage. That's number one. What's something you consider one of your guilty pleasures or vices? Oh, God. I mean, just, you know, nicotine. I'm, I'm Tucker Carlson for Zen. Um, you know, I've got terrible eating habits. I, that's basically it. I don't drink or anything. Um, I haven't had a drink in 20 years and never will again. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm a nicotine guy. I love it. I grew up with it. I'm off the tobacco, but I do love nicotine. I mean, uh, all right. Uh, who is one person that's saved in your phone contacts that may surprise people? Oh, I would never reveal that. <laughs> I talked to some amazing people, though. I will say this. There's so much downward pressure being exerted on the society that people, as you pointed out at the beginning of the conversation, have really changed. You know, people change under pressure. And there are a couple of people I talk to who I think, I honestly cannot believe this person is calling me. It's just so interesting. And I really like to talk to people who've got different experiences. I'm trying not to use the word diverse because it's been destroyed, but I actually believe in the concept, which is, you know, we should all come from different places. And I want to hear people have said, yeah, I mean, I'll just say this. The fact that I talk to Bobby Kennedy, who's one of my junior, who's one of my all time favorite people, one of the bravest people, smartest, most rigorous in his thinking um, and so deeply enjoy it. I wouldn't have imagined that, you know, 20 yeah. years ago. Who is one person who consistently makes you laugh? Oh, God, my brother. I have like the funniest brother ever. I talked to him this morning. Sitting on my porch for about an hour, it's just like, true. I'll tell you who makes me laugh. My brother's at the top of the list, but anybody who can stand back far enough to see the, the fundamental absurdity, not just like, I can't believe what Fauci said today, but like, well, how did an 81-year-old guy take control of the country? Like, you know, you know what I mean? Just like, who can see the bigger picture? And my brother, whatever his fault, is like the indisputed world champion at seeing like, wait, this is all insane. So I do love talking to him. That's great. All right. Last one. What is the last great piece of content that you've read, heard, or watched? Oh gosh, I'm almost done. I'm actually looking at it right now. Um, with the, I don't, I don't watch anything. I don't have a TV. I'm not, I'm not a, I don't, I'm not a, I'm super dyslexic. So I don't like to watch images move. I like to read. 
Um, I get transcripts of TV stuff. Actually, my staff sent them to me because oh, wow. my brain works that way. But uh, I just read a history of the Haitian Revolution that was like so mind-boggling. Basically, in one sentence, the French Revolution of 1789 kind of came over to Haiti three months late, and those ideas, uh, you know, informed the Haitian Revolution, which, like the French Revolution, was like mind-bogglingly bloody and. It's just interesting how ideas are like viruses, like they're they're communicable and they have massive and in some cases they kill a lot of people. Mm. Um, so it's a fascinating, fascinating book, like the most interesting book I've read this year. Wow. Tucker Carlson, thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me, man. Good to see uh, you. Yeah, you too. Appreciate you doing it. Thanks, Steve. Thanks so much to Tucker Carlson. Remember, Fourth Watch is not just a podcast, it's also a newsletter. Subscribe for free now at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in the show as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. That's Super Duper Music on Instagram. The song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. Download, follow, like, rate, review this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Next episode, I'll be joined by Anna Marie Cox of Crooked Media. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then.